This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm your host, Jennifer Jewell. Salvias are among my favorite of flowers. Do I say that about a different plant group just about every other week? It could be. Let's say then that this week, this time of year, salvias are among my very favorite of flowering plants. It's a big and diverse group, so you're not bound to get bored with them anytime soon. In my current suburban garden, small, no matter how you slice it, I have nine different salvias and counting. In some of our recent Cultivating Place conversations, we've heard of the value of salvias for pollinators and habitat and the many native salvias in California. Today we're going to dig a little deeper into this well-loved cornerstone herbaceous perennial with salvia expert Ernie Wasson. Now retired and enjoying life in the garden and on the trail in far northern California, Ernie's career was spent as a gardener, horticulturist, author, and educator at international college and community levels. He was the American co-chief editor for the North American edition of the 1997 botany publication Botanica. He worked and lived and gardened in the northeastern United States for six years. He then helped build and curate a remarkable teaching garden, including an enviable collection of salvias at Cabrillo College in Aptos, California. Ernie took part in the first two international salvia summits over the past 10 years. A third summit is being held this fall in the Bay Area. Welcome, Ernie. Thank you. So, Talk about your early influences in life that led you to become a plants person, a horticulturalist, and eventually develop this passion for salvias. Well, I grew up in the Berkeley Hills, and um, that's definitely a favorite climate to grow a wide range of plants. Uh, My mom was into flower gardens, and my dad was into vegetables and fruit trees. So we had different levels in our garden, in the backyard, which had those different things. And in the front yard, there was a pond, cactus mound, and then in the side yard, there was some uh, Hawaiian tree ferns and fuchsias, and then a collection. My my mother loved green flowering plants. So I was just basically surrounded by plants. I didn't have a choice. (laughs) And, and how did you come to make this into your career? Well, I went to Humboldt State University, and um, I always thought you shouldn't uh, combine your hobbies and your profession. And so I, I was a geography major, and, but I took a lot of classes in the areas of botany and natural resources and other related things. Um, and I got out, and I was going to do some city planning, and I did a little of that and realized, I don't like this. I don't like all the politics. I don't like all the time spent on drafting tables, and so I went back to school and started getting degrees in horticulture and realized that was my life passion. And eventually you took a master's in uh, horticulture, I believe? Yes, back at the University of Delaware, and it was really a great program because it was a fellowship program through Longwood Gardens. Ooh, nice. So we classes were at University of Delaware, and then all our Many of our field trips and all the summer work was at Longwood Gardens, which, of course, is like over a thousand-acre garden with 100 gardeners, 12 acres of greenhouses, and unlimited resources, really. So it's like candy land for plants. Mm-hmm. And where did you first meet salvias? Um, 
That's a good question. I don't really know the answer to that. I think, I think there was salvias in my mom's flower garden. Uh, I think probably the salvia farinacea, the the blue bedding plant mm-hmm. salvia. I think they were there, but I mean, I really, I definitely saw salvias back east. But it wasn't until I went to work at Cabrillo College in 1998 that I kind of dived into the salvia world. And describe that because. It really describe the collection and describe the development of that collection and its original impetus. Well, it was Kathy Navarez, who's, who now works at Suncrest Nursery, and Chris Dye, who now lives in Colorado, who started the salvia collection somewhere in the early 1990s. They were they were growing cut flowers, and they just saw that some of the salvias made great cut flowers, so they started growing them, and then it just kind of grew from there, and. Um, I don't know, you know, gardeners exchange plants, exchange seed, people come visit from other places and bring things, and it just kind of went from there. And um, Betsy Kleps, you know, who lives only an hour away or so from Cabrillo College, was influenced us all down there. And then um, with Tilden Botanic Garden and Striving Arboretum nearby and Suncrest Nursery, it's just just so many plants flowing in all directions down Mm -hmm. there that, collection just started growing and Kathy's just really good at propagating and growing them and you know at one point I think we had over at our plant sale like 130 or 140 different salvias for sale at our annual plant sale. And at the the height of the collection at the the growing demonstration educational garden at Cabrillo how many different species did you have do you know? Um, I would guess it was around 150, 160, somewhere in that range. It was always there's always some dying or disappearing, and there's always some new ones going in. So it's never a fixed number, <laughs> but but at least 150. And it is uh, to describe it for listeners who may not have visited it. It is a a beautiful sort of shifting topography, shifting shade and light. Uh, exposure in the um, in the Cabrillo College Gardens when I last saw them, at least. So you had some in in the bright sun and dry conditions, and some in shade, growing to their full kind of almost rainforest potential. Um, and so you got a real sense of the the scope of the genus in these gardens. Right. I mean, the the collection was really planted at the edge of an oak forest, so we could plant things like the um, Salvia gesnera flora, which grows in Mexico underneath oak trees. So we could do that, just plant it just like it would be if in Mexico under an oak tree. And then other salvias were out in full sun and some were in partial shade. And um, you know, it's on a raised old marine terrace that was once under the ocean. So it's, it's back a bit from the edge. So it's got some wind protection, but it's still near the ocean, so it's a moderate climate. The only salvias we couldn't grow there very well um, it's funny, but the one salvia that most people would know probably right away, the culinary sage, the salvia officinalis, we would, our soils were too heavy for it there. It would just die out. And then the uh, desert salvias, there's just too much rain in Santa Cruz for the desert salvias. Hmm. And then some of the tender tropical salvias would, uh, we'd have to take cuttings and bring them in in the winter because they, most winters they wouldn't last. But the vast majority of the salvia world, we could grow them there. And so describe for us 
a sort of overview of this genus, because it's pretty remarkable in a couple of ways. Well, it's remarkable. I mean, from a gardener standpoint, pretty much all the colors you want, from white to yellow to pink to red to purple to, I can't remember the name of the salvia. We saw pictures of it at the Salvia Summit 2, that almost black salvia from uh, South America. It was, you know, just stunning. So it's remarkable that way. And then there's annuals and perennials and woody shrub salvias. And then they come from um, nearly all the continents in the world. I'm, I'm a little fuzzy about whether there's one in Aust- a native one in Australia. There is an active salvia group in Australia, which they grow a lot of salvias from the rest of the world. But there's several salvias. I think my last count I saw, there's at least 36 from Europe and 59 from Africa. Turkey has like 86. And then, of course, um, California has 17. Um, um, Mexico has three, four, five hundred, 500. And then Central South America has about the same. So, And Asia has um, a, a bunch of salvias. I can't remember how many, but there's some really beautiful salvias from Asia. So I'm not aware of Australia having one, and of course uh, Antarctic doesn't have one. But otherwise, they're pretty much around the world. And they have a great range of of size and uh, condition needs. So you can get little tiny ones, little ground cover ones, and then these huge, almost tree form uh, varieties to grow pretty much anywhere you might offer any condition you might have, you can find a salvia to grow in it, is my, my general feeling about them. Yes, all the way from the drought-tolerant California and South Africa ones to the uh, salvia uliginosa, the bog sage, which will grow right in water. And um, this Jesnera flora one from Mexico that grows up through oak trees up to about 25 feet in height. It, it leans on the trees. It's kind of like that term, Leoni, I think it is. So it's kind of a vining shrub. And then, you know, all the ones to the ground covers, like the Salvia somanensis, which is just a beautiful ground cover. And I didn't know, grew up here in the Mount Shasta area and was just blown away when I first saw huge carpets of it up here. Yeah. Um, it's spectacular. So let's talk a little bit about the the cultivation of it for habitat, for pollinators. Um, it's a it's a very aromatic plant. The almost the whole is is that characteristic of the whole genus? Most of the genus. There's some exceptions, but they're in the mint family. So most things in the mint family have, you know, essential oils and are aromatic and most of them deer won't touch. And um, many of them I mean I mean it's such I mean such a large genus, over 900, maybe 1,000 species. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them attract bees. A lot of them attract hummingbirds. And there are a fair amount that um, attract the night moth, the hawk moth, or the sphinx moth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a wide range. It, and it it's, has, it's had this wonderful coevolution with its pollinator uh, partners, and so has this fantastic mechanism, which a, a couple of other plants also demonstrate this, but wherein in order to get the nectar, you the, the creature, the, the bee or the hummingbird, uh, triggers a little 
staminal lever mechanism, if I'm getting that right, Ernie, at the right. at the back of the blossom. And it's this fantastic little lever that just kind of bends down and dabs pollen on the back of the bee or on the head of the hummingbird. And the hummingbird doesn't even have to, or, or the pollinator doesn't even have to worry about it and just flies off to pollinate. It's, a, it's an incredibly efficient and feat of engineering almost. And then on the flower, there's that upper hood or upper lip. If, hood is a good definition. It kind of protects all the, the uh, flower parts. And then that lower lip is a landing pad, for the, especially for the bees to land on. And a lot of those landing pads have either dots or little stripes. Sometimes they're ultraviolet. I mean, sometimes they're only seen by the insects, not by us. And it's just kind of a landing light that says, go in here. Go in right. here to the nectaries. And... Um, it's just a it's definitely a plant made to be pollinated by creatures. This is Cultivating Place, and this week we're joined by salvia expert and enthusiast Ernie Wasson, retired curator and nursery manager from Cabrillo College near Santa Cruz, home to a remarkable salvia collection. We began our conversation talking about the vast range and allure of this flowering plant group. When we come back, we'll learn more about how to grow them and some of Ernie's favorites. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place. Before the break, we began our conversation with plantsman Ernie Wasson about the diversity and overall fabulousness of salvias, a vast genus of over 900 species with origins from across the globe and from our home gardens. We're back to talk more about how to grow them and which ones might be fun to try. Welcome back. In your home garden in Dunsmere, are you growing salvias? Oh, yeah, I definitely have salvias here. <laughs> All right, so, so walk us through what ones you are growing. The ones I'm growing that have been the most successful so far, the salvia koyami, the Japanese yellow sage, mm. which um, is not in Sunset. In fact, you can only, the only place I, I was looking for a place to find it online to buy it these days, and just the flowers by the sea mail order people have it. It's a yellow, yellow salvia, which is, there aren't too many. It has nice, big, lush green leaves. It likes uh, shade and some water, not a lot of water. But it becomes a pretty large plant, like two by three and a half feet, and it blooms for months on end. And just one of my new favorite salvias, and it loves the climate up here. <laughs> and what zone are you at in Dunsmere? I'm sunset zone... Seven at the very edge of it. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. If uh, we're at twenty three hundred feet, if you go up the hill to Mount Shasta, totally different climate zone, mm-hmm. more like a three or four up there. Mm-hmm. So across the street from me, there's pomegranates and fig trees, and uh, I have apples and plums here, and there's a persimmon trees in town. Um, Mount Shasta is just another world, and it's only seven miles away. Um, other salvias, I have salvia patens, which of course is a deciduous salvia that you know comes from central. Mexico and um, has a tuberous base to it, and it gets these large blue flowers. I love the blue flowers on that, and it's a part shade plant. I have Salvia somanensis in my garden. I was able to find some. It's hard to find that in the, in the nursery trade, but the uh, plant sale at the Arboretum, at the, at the uh, Community College, Shasta College, their plant sale, they, the native plant people there had Salvia somanensis that they had selected from somewhere in the hills around Reading, and it's doing well. I'm just kind of shocked because it's a hard one to deal with. I, I, never, I never water any of the native salvias on a warm or hot day. They're only watered if they need water on a cold day. Um, I just generally leave it alone. And so that's a hard one to get started because when you first plant it, you want to water it. So you better be cool when you plant it and not hot because they just cannot take water and heat. Um, what other salvias? I have uh, Garanitica in my garden. It's just coming up. It's done pretty good. Um, I like that a lot. Um, I have um, Mystic Spires, which is more of a bedding plant salvia. And I really fell in love with that plant at Cabrillo because it bloomed for months on end, and it really is one of, the, one of my favorite bee salvias. It really attracts a lot of bees. If you love bees, Mystic Spires is a great salvia that you can get as a bedding plant. I have Heldrickiana, which is um, a salvia from Turkey. It's in full bloom right now. It's a Mediterranean climate salvia, and it can, it can take down to about 15 degrees and needs good drainage. I don't water it ever. And, oh, Salvia spathaceae, the hummingbird sage. Mm, one of our natives also, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've... The plants are doing well. They've not bloomed as maybe this year they'll be better established and they'll bloom more, but last year they just had a few flowers on them. But with those ones in mind, and you, if, if you were going to recommend, say, three to five additional salvias that maybe a beginner salvia grower might, might try in their garden, um, irrespective of zone, what would those be? Well, I'd probably go for a mix. I mean, uh, let's see. L- people love this uh, pineapple sage, the salvia elegans, and that um, that can you know it's that pineapple scented leaves, mm-hmm. red showy flowers. It's great in iced teas and in fruit salads. And it's very very red. <laughs> very very red. Hummingbirds notice that right away. <laughs> so I think that's a classic one to grow. If you're into the native salvias, I think the bees bliss, which is uh, a ground cover salvia. It's a cross between Leucophila and Somanensis, and it's very um, drought tolerant, and it attracts those hawk moths, the snake moths at night. Really, I remember Cabrillo would be four or five of them working a big mound we had of that. And they're great as a ground cover. They spill over rocks, drought tolerant. The only thing you can't do with them, no overhead water on Bees Bliss. Otherwise, they get uh, funky. And it should be noted that they are a very, very happy plant once established. So have a little room for Bees Bliss to spread out. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
six feet or more. Right. But on a, on a slope that you don't need or want to water, once they get established, it's just really a great plant. What about one of the, um, the smaller leafed ones? One of the microphyllas or the... The microphyllas, I mean, the one that's been so popular has been hot lips, the two-tone one, mm-hmm. which came from a garden outside of Oaxaca. Um, and microphyllas are really sturdy plants. They get to be pretty, pretty good. I mean, it's a small leaf, but they get wide. So they get three, four, five feet wide. And they're pretty drought tolerant. They do better with a little bit of water in a hot and a dry climate. But um, I like them a lot. And pretty much all of these, in terms of the cultivation and care, can, um, beyond the watering recommendations that you've noted, they can be cut back pretty hard uh, as needed and or at the end of the the flowering season. They don't take a lot of food, um, and they don't have a lot of pests. Would you say that's true? I'd say that's true, yeah. Pest-wise, salvias can be affected by gophers. <laughs> which yes. you can eat anything, really. But besides that, I cannot think of anything else at Cabrillo that we ever had any problem with. Um, deer leave them alone. Um, it, yeah, insects. The only time I, we had an insect problem was in the greenhouse when we were starting them, when they're really tiny and really you know, lush and, and growing in a humid condition. But once they got in the ground and hardened off, they were just off to the races. Um, And when do you normally prune yours? Because it seems to be a constant question of salvia growers. I I think I'm supposed to cut this back, but I'm not sure how hard and when. (laughs) Um, Well, it all depends. I I generally wait till early spring, especially up here. I'm only in my third year in this garden up here, and I'm not sure, you know, what the winters are quite like or what the effects are. So I tend to leave a fair amount of the shrub on because it kind of protects the base of the plant. And then as soon as I see some spring growth happening anywhere on the plant, then I cut it back. Uh, my microphylla, I, and I have some, yeah, the microphyllas I cut back like two-thirds. And um, many of the others, like the patents, that dies to the ground. Um, and then the, the koyami that I love so much, it dies to the ground. And the Heldrickiana, I cut back about halfway. So it, it, many of them you can cut back halfway or even more. You just have to see, you know, you may have put it in too small a space for what it needs and may have to cut it back a little harder, or maybe it's in shade and stretching. It doesn't have as much light as it needs, and it's going to get a little more lanky and you need to cut it back to keep it bushy. It's kind of the condition it's in. But I wouldn't be afraid to, as soon as you see some new spring growth happening, I wouldn't be afraid to cut it back as hard as you want. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's two types of gardeners, those who love to prune things back to almost <laughs> nearly nothing and those who don't want to touch plants. So um, I tend to go more heavy on the pruning than lighter, but as I get older, I tend to prune a little less. <laughs> so I know that um, a lot of people are fascinated with all the different shapes and the, and the smells of salvias. A lot of the native salvias have very distinctive chaparral-type smells, which can be really nice in the garden. And then the way the hummingbirds and the bees work with them is, is really good. Yeah. Um, and the butterflies. And, and, yeah. Um, I have out in my parking strip, I have salvia leucophylla. I have salvia clevelandii. 
I have um, at least two others. And every time you walk by, you know, if there's even a light breeze or there's been a tiny bit of dew or, or rain, it just has the most incredible smell. Yeah, and I remember being down some roads by Santa, by uh, well, south of San Luis Obispo, some canyon where all the Luco violas were um, deciduous, and they were, and it just had rained, and there was a smell, and I couldn't figure out what it was. So I stopped the car and got out, and then I realized that all the shrubs around me were Luco violas, and they were just all starting to bud up, and just the the dry dust from the winter, or was now moist a bit, was just a beautiful smell. Yeah. Oh, well, very nice. But, but I never seem to find salvias that are, you know, some some plants are heavily fragrant and can be a little obtrusive or whatever you want, a little obnoxious, but I don't feel that way about salvias. The, the, the smells are more mellow and, and pleasing. Yeah, they're very they're very earthy and um and medicinal, lots of medicinal uses for, for sage. So Lots of medicinal ones, and then um, ones that you can use, you know, like the, the pineapple sage or the, uh, the culinary sage officinalis to use in cooking. Yeah. But if you plant the officinalis, you've got to have really good drainage and never, ever water it on a hot day because that will just finish it off within the day. Okay. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> going to do it, I promise. <laughs> And uh, one thing we didn't even mention was a lot of salvias can be grown in pots. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then you can move them around and move them in and out. And um, most of them tend to be on the, you know, small to medium-sized range. Yeah. And well-behaved. <laughs> yeah, they aren't. Uh, so, uh, yeah, except for the, the bees' bliss and, and to some extent the sonamensis. They, they, don't, they don't spread very far. They, they just kind of keep their space. Sometimes it's big, but they keep in it. So, And then we did mention, too, some, a lot of the, the Chinese and European sages, which tend to be smaller, are extremely hardy, you know, minus 20, minus 30 degrees. So if you're in a spot that's really cold, the sages from those two areas of the world are, you know, ones that are more popular and can grow in your area. So basically, you can get sages that can take cold temperatures, and you can get sages that are in the desert. So you've got that whole range of environmental habitats to choose from. And we have some great resources in the book world as well. Most recently, The Plant Lover's Guide to Salvias, written and beautifully photographed by another salvia expert and grower and native of Northern California, our friend John Whittlesey. And of course, the earlier reference book by Betsy Klepsch, to whom we referred earlier as well. And lots of websites on salvias. If you just, just Google salvias, it's overwhelming what's out there. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ernie. I appreciate it. It was nice talking to you, and I hope I get to see you at the summit. Okay. I hope so, too. All right. Happy gardening until then. Happy spring. Okay. Bye. Bye. Ernie Wasson is a longtime plantsman and lover of the genus Salvia. He curated the Salvia collection at Cabrillo College in Santa Cruz and participated in the first two international Salvia summits. A third summit is being held at Tilden Regional Park in the East Bay area this fall. For more information on that event, please visit jewelgarden.com. 
Next week, the conversations continue when we catch up with historian and author Andrea Wolf. Her most recent book exploring the many ways in which nature, botany, and horticulture influence human culture and the development of nations is The Invention of Nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World, published in 2015 and for which Miss Wolf is currently on a stateside 35-city tour. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schultz. Audio archives of the program can be found weekly at mynspr.org. More information and photos can be found at JewelGarden.com. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.